The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Backstage Gaming Dramatic Takes on Your Favorite Games. I'm Chris. And I'm Dylan. And we're coming at you real smooth today. I don't know why I opened the episode like that. Hey, that was hey, a weird hey, energy. Hey, 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 don't harsh the mellow. I'm sorry, buddy. What if yeah. we did the whole episode like this for no reason? I, you know what? If you guys, if you guys like the direction we're taking this episode in, you should engage with us. Sorry about that voice crack. It's been a very yeah. long day. Tell, you tell should us engage on Twitter with us. if you, if you like this vibe for our show a little bit more. Use that hashtag BSG pod. <laughs> I really hated that particular read, but <laughs> we'll keep going. Take two. No, okay. no, no, let's keep going. <laughs> so this week we're here to talk about a little something called tragedy. Oh, so sad. And by that, I don't mean the way that it's used in modern parlance, but we, we're going to, we're going to take this real old school and we're going to talk antiquity, about antiquity. No, I'm yeah. saying all the way back to a little fella named Aristotle. Now see, Aristotle wrote a book. It was a book called The Poetics. And in it, he basically laid out how storytelling works. And at least in the Western tradition, that shit stuck, fam. We've been, we've been rocking with what Aristotle laid down for 2,000-some years. They made us read this stuff for a reason. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and part of that reason is that it's boring. But another part of it is that because it still kind of fucking happens. But we're going to talk about what it is that makes a classical tragedy. And we're going to talk about some games that have actually engaged with that in a really thoughtful way. Because it's enough to make a tragedy happen in the story. But I feel like what really sells tragedy is the uh, having it happen mechanically. Exactly. Having it be a result of your game loop. Exactly. Now, hey, Dylan. What yeah. is if you had to if you had to pick one, what's the the tragedy that everyone has read? You were probably forced to read it in high school if you're a resident of the United States and maybe other countries. I don't know about your education systems. Oh, are you talking about Oedipusy? You know I am, baby boy. So Oedipus Rex is a, a little play by a cat named Euripides. It was written for the Festival of Dionysus in Athens way long time ago, back in like, I want to say four or 500 BCE. I could be slightly off about that. I don't have notes open in front of me. I'm actually kind of impressed. Yo, this shit's my jam. But Oedipus is about this fella named Oedipus. He's the king of Thebes, and Thebes has it rough. There is a huge plague just racking everything, and Oedipus has taken it upon himself. He is going to figure out what's wrong. And he knows Tell me about that Sphinx, daddy Oh, yeah. He knows that he is the guy who is going to figure it out. You know why he's the king of Thebes? He's the king why of Thebes. That? Because when he was a younger man, he solved the riddle of the Sphinx. What goes on th- four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, three legs at night. He knew that's man, baby. 
crawls as a baby, walks as a man, uses a cane when he gets old. The Sphinx let him pass instead of killing him. In fact, I think, think the, I think the Sphinx died, but in the, doing that... The Sphinx that, kills itself, yeah. Yeah, but in doing that, he fulfilled an ancient prophecy, freeing Th- Thebes. It wasn't even a prophecy. I'm, what am I talking about? I'm getting too wrapped up in this voice. He freed Thebes from fear of the Sphinx, and Thebes was kingless because their king had been killed on the road years ago. And so they made Oedipus king, which meant he also got to marry the queen, Yocasta. Now, Oedipus is all about trying to figure out why Thebes has this plague, because it's not just a plague like what we have in the modern day. No, that's yucky. It's a plague because the gods are angry. And so Oedipus knows that all he needs to do is figure out why the gods are angry and the plague will leave. And he keeps digging and digging and digging and he finds out all this stuff. He finds out that the old king was murdered and was murdered on the road. He finds out that they had a kid, the old king and Yocasta, and that kid was abandoned. And as he's going, Yocasta starts to figure it out a little bit before Oedipus does. See, what she figures out is Oedipus is her kid. See, a long time ago, Oedipus's dad got this prophecy given that his, king, his kid would grow up to kill him and marry his wife. Now, Oedipus's dad didn't like that, so when his wife had a son, he had that kid's heels spiked and left him to die of exposure, but the kid was saved. Fun fact, Oedipus means swollen foot because he had a stake driven through his heels as a baby. So, Oedipus, a little too late, finds out that he's the problem with Thebes. He knew he could solve it, but in the end, he was the real villain the whole time because he, on the road in a fit of anger, killed a man. That man, his dad. Then he solves the riddle of the Sphinx, marries Yocasta, his mom. Yocasta figures it out just before Oedipus does and runs into the house to kill herself. She hangs herself. Oedipus runs in, sees this, and realizing what exactly has happened, takes her brooch pins, which, as a reminder to you, Erotic subtext, that would have made her tunic fall open because, hey, Oedipus goes hard, stabs his eyes out. Then he exiles himself from Thebes, ending the source of the curse. So, Chris, now, I got one question. Yeah. What's the most tragic thing about Oedipus's story? It has a sad ending, but that's not what makes it tragic. Aristotle <laughs> would say that a sad ending in and of itself does not a tragedy make. The sad ending, the, the thing that makes it a tragedy is that Oedipus is undone entirely by himself. Oedipus is ruined because of his own flaw. In, in Greek tragedy, there is this idea of the fatal flaw. You might be thinking to yourself, oh yes, hubris, that's not it. Hubris is Oedipus's fatal flaw. The term for this in the Greek is the hamartia. In the case of Oedipus, it was his hubris. It was the fact that he was so convinced of his own abilities and his own intelligence that he knew he could solve it. And in that conviction, he delved too greedily and too deep and damned himself. Tragedy, in the classical sense, is about a great figure being brought low. It's not enough for something to be sad. You have to have a character who is sort of on top of the world. Characters in tragedies tend to be people like Oedipus, who's a king. Heracles has several tragedies about him. Ajax or Orestes, all of these like noble warrior kings and princes. And through their own actions and the fact that they have this one thing that they're not good enough because of, they ruin themselves. That's tragedy, baby. So Dylan, yeah, talk to me about a game that engages with this. Because games have a unique ability here. Because of the way that they draw us in as players, they have the ability to make those moments of realization, what Aristotle would call the recognition and reversal, that moment where you realize 
what has happened, and you change because of it. Oedipus realizes he's the problem. He blinds himself and banishes himself. Recognition and reversal. Games make you feel that. Games make you live that moment. So Dylan, what's a, what's a tragic game in this context? Well, one of the first games that I would describe as tragic is Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater for the PlayStation 2. Now talk to me and, about this. I, I know that you love this game. Why is it yeah. a tragedy? So I think it's a tragedy in two ways. It's a, it's a tragedy in the text, and it's also a tragedy due to the built-up expectations of the players. Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2, I've talked about this multiple times, so Metal Gear Solid 1 is really what introduced a lot of people to Solid Snake and the Metal Gear mythos. Um, and Solid Snake was this cruel, brooding guy who was a, the perfect soldier, and he he lived for battle, and his character arc was finding a way out of that. It was about finding inner peace and being able to enjoy life away from combat. Um, in Metal Gear Solid 2, there's a bait-and-switch. You think you're going to be playing a snake again, but because Snake is a fully developed person... You, do, the, you, the player, you are not allowed control over him. So instead, you're given control over Raiden. Now, Raiden is everything that Snake is not. Raiden is a rookie. He's shaky. His voice is higher pitched. He's he's really, you know, a lot of people would describe him as whiny, and they're right to do so. But Raiden's character arc is about looking and examining at the character that Solid Snake was at the beginning of Metal Gear Solid 1 and recognizing that the forces of the game are trying to turn him into this character, and he has to reject that and say, no, I want to be my own person. So, this brings us to Metal Gear Solid 3, where Big Boss, in a lot of ways, is the perfect soldier, almost. He is, in in, in the text, he's considered to be a little naive, innocent, in a way. Uh, he's, he's a very charismatic person. He, he likes to joke. He's a He's a lot more sociable than Solid Snake was, or even Raiden was. He likes to crack a lot of jokes. He's He comes across as a lot warmer and friendlier. And he also has a relationship with his old mentor, the boss. The boss is a World War II war hero. Um, and I think she was also in Metal Gear Solid lore, the first woman in space. And, like, you know, she has, like, a million things on her resume. It's Yo, kind of ridiculous. I had no it is idea. also rad as hell. And so... Big Boss is, or uh, sorry, uh, did I call him Big Boss or did I call him Naked Snake? Because it's you called him Big Boss, but he's, him he's Boss. both of those. It, it, like Big Boss gets that title at the end of Metal Gear Solid. I'll just call him Snake. He's Snake now. Um, <laughs> so Snake is on a mission in Russia, and he he has to extract a, a soldier, and I'm I'm not a soldier, a scientist. And I won't get too much into the details because there's a lot of fucking details. It's a Metal Gear game. But the short of it is the mission goes AWOL or like haywire because the boss shows up unexpectedly and shows up to defect to the Soviet Union and she makes Snake's mission go up in flames. So the Russians learn about this operation that was supposed to be a complete secret and they're angry about it. So the US government to try to patch things up make Snake go in, finish the mission that he started, and also kill the boss. And so as Snake goes on, he is wounded more and more, and there there's this idea of questioning patriotism and having blind faith in your country. And what Snake does is, like, 
he is challenged to be the perfect patriot, the perfect soldier, and he sees his mission through to the end. And then it is revealed after the end, like after the final boss fight, it's revealed that all along the boss was playing a role. She was she wasn't actually defecting to the Soviet Union. She was going undercover because that was the mission the mission the U.S. government assigned her. And so that, there's this feeling of, of a emptiness. Holy there's shit. this feeling of emptiness where he realizes that by being the perfect soldier, he has killed the only person he has ever loved or cared about. Um, and he becomes an empty shell of himself. So if you had to put it into one word, what would you say that Snake's Hamartia is in Metal Gear Solid Foot 3? I would say Snake's Hamartia is being the ideal video game character. Whereas Solid Snake and to a much greater extent Raiden question the role they are given and try to re-examine and recontextualize it, it for the audience, Snake kind of buys into the role wholeheartedly. He he never questions anything, even as new revelations are being brought up that would put the mission, the assignment into question. And he sees his role through to the end and realizes that he is much less of a person because of it. Man, that's tragic. That's pretty tragic. Next game I want to talk about real quick is, fittingly enough for a topic based in ancient Greece, the original God of War for the PlayStation 2. Now, God of War seems like a weird choice, but God of War is basically a picture-perfect tragedy. See, God of War follows Kratos, who in a lot of ways mimics Hercules in terms of sort of mythic ideals. See, Kratos, at the very beginning of God of War, is tricked by Ares into killing his family. Now, this in turn, sets Kratos on this path of revenge. Kratos is filled with rage and filled with anger at Ares, and he sets off on this crusade to get revenge, killing countless humans and mythical beasts and even gods in his path to vengeance. And at the end of the game, he reaches that. He kills Ares. He, he has his revenge, and he realizes that it's not enough. He still has this blood on his hands. He, his family is still dead because of him and because of his own rage and because of that. That is why Ares was able to manipulate him. And Kratos, at the end of this, he has this recognition and he hurls himself into the sea. I don't need to do a lot of background for this because this is really just... That's Greek myth, baby. That's tragedy. <laughs> that's it. Kratos has his amarty. He has his rage, his anger, his inability to forgive. To forgive Ares, but also to forgive himself. And you know what's even more tragic about that? He throws himself into the sea, but he can't die. After that shot, the next shot is him sitting on Ares' throne as the new god of war. The tragedy of Kratos isn't that he's not able to find, isn't, or I suppose it isn't just that he's not able to find that closure. It's that he realizes that he'll never have that closure as he gets immortality. God of War 1 for all of the things about it that aren't great and for all of the things about it that are dated as hell, does a really good job of tapping into a very tight Greek tragic style. And if you haven't played it or if it's been a while, I recommend you go back and play it with that mindset because there's a lot going on in that game underneath the gory, cheap sex veneer. <laughs> hey, I'll ask if I can borrow a friend's copy. Please do. I think it's great. It's also... Yeah. Like I said, it's dated, and boy howdy, by character action game standards, I'm sure it doesn't hold up super good. I'll play it on it was... easy mode. It'll be therapeutic. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. 
So, Chris, uh, <laughs> do you know the plot to Conquer's Bad Fur Day? No, Dylan. I don't. Okay, so Conquer's Bad Fur Day was the all last... I know, all I remember about Conquer's Bad Fur, Fur Day is that you saved the game by taking a shit. That's no more heroes, you troglodyte. I think um, it's also Conquer's Bad Fur Day. There's a giant singing piece of shit in Conquer's Bad Fur Day. However, you do not save by taking a shit. I think you can save the game manually. By well, maybe I'm pausing and the saving thing. the game. To be perfectly honest, the last time I thought about Conquer's Bad Fur Day was when I was in third grade and saw it on the Racket <laughs> Family video. Yeah. <laughs> St- uh, stay in the bit, stay in the bit, stay in yep, the bit. Yep, yep, yep. Um, <laughs> same, uh, I, I heard people talking about it on a podcast when I was in high school and it made me check it out. And then I found a copy of it super cheap. It goes for a lot more expensive nowadays, but I decided to get it. And it actually, like the story is still juvenile in a very like early 2000s South Park kind of way. Um, if it's, the, it's the dude, where's my car of video games. Yeah. Like if Congress bet for a day from a glance isn't your thing don't let what i say convince you to check it out because it really is exactly what it says on the box but i still think it's worth talking about because i guess the one heady kind of brainy thing that congress bad fur day does is uh, once again congress bad fur day is the final uh nintendo 64 platformer that rareware made um they're known for uh such games as banjo kazooie uh, Donkey Kong 64, those are like the, the big platformers, but you know, they've also done GoldenEye, Killer Instinct, all that good stuff. Um, I always forget that GoldenEye was rare. Oh yeah. Conker's Bad Fur Day kind of takes this idea of the cartoon mascot platformer uh, who goes around collecting these MacGuffins to kind of, you know, to lead to progress. And Conker's Bad Fur Day is a much more linear game, but progress is still kind of uh, delineated by... And the the MacGuffin in Conker's Bad Fur Day is wads of cash. And so the narrative is that Conker is being greedy, basically. Everything he's doing, he's doing for money. He the the inciting incident of this game is he <laughs> he's out uh drinking late with his friends and he is so drunk he go he takes the wrong way home and he ends up waking up in a completely remote place and he's gotta find his way home. So it's the hangover, but like it, ten, 10 or 20 years, or not 20. Like. Well, it's not Conker trying to rechase his steps. It's him trying to get home. But like oh. in trying to get home, he keeps amassing more and more money because those are the distractions that like Conker d- doesn't really want to go home to his girlfriend, Barry, who is a very buxom, like Pamela Anderson figured chipmunk because it was the early 2000s. And like they got to get they got to get that Lola Bunny heat. That was a really weird, like, you have Tana Vandicoot, you have <laughs> Barry the Squirrel or Chipmunk <laughs> or whatever. Like, what the fuck was up with fucking gamers just, just or a, game just developers? A lo- just a lot of furries in those development Candy spaces. Candy Kong? What? <laughs> and Funky Kong. <laughs> Uptown Funk Me Up. <laughs> <laughs> And we're back. <laughs> we got there. So anyway, um, Conker's been basically brushing off getting back home and getting to his girlfriend, Barry. 
in favor of going on all these adventures to collect, collect, collect more money. That you know, rare games are known as collectathons for a reason, and Conquer's Bad Fur Day kind of pokes fun at its own concept, uh, where instead of being for like any sort of actual tangible progression, it is the result of Conquer's own greed. And so the final level in Conquer's Bad Fur Day is a very dated parody of The Matrix. Oh my god. <laughs> of course. Where he gets hired... fucking delightful, daddy-o. He gets hired by a bunch of mafia weasels to rob a bank. And so it's the, you know, it's the lobby scene in The Matrix that is playable. And you do the heist, and at the end, Barry's also there. Uh, I feel like that's a very important thing to note. Um, Barry's there, and she gets shot and is killed. And Conker has to fight the final boss, which is a xenomorph. Uh, like taken, like the fight is straight out of Aliens. Of course, it is. Con- Conker's Bad Fur Day is a really fucking weird game, and you know he is actually about to die, but he activate like the game glitches, and then like he talks to a hacker who's you know he's fourth wall breaking, and so the hacker like changes everything, and then after he kills the final boss he realizes oh shit i didn't bring back barry and then that spirals into all the the platformer characters that he's been helping throughout the game for for money they all kind of gather around him and they're like you're our true hero um and like they they make him king of the land um and then he kind of realizes like in doing all this adventuring and helping all these people like and by being more dear to them than I have been to my girlfriend, I am now here alone and isolated and unloved. That's some big Kratos energy right there. It is some big Kratos energy. It's, That's it's, I had no idea that Conquer's Bad for a Day had any depth whatsoever. It has a weirdly poignant ending. That's, That's also a parody wild. of A Clockwork Orange. Like, I, again, Conquer's Bad for a Day is a really fucking weird game. That's bizarre, but interesting. I'd, I never knew that. So thank you for teaching me something, Dylan. Yeah, by all means. The one other game that I know that we've got to talk about, then let's talk about Iconoclasts. Because we have to talk about Iconoclasts. It's, we're, we're contractually obligated to talk about Iconoclasts. <laughs> if, we don't talk about, if we don't talk about Iconoclasts, Konjak will come and terminate the show completely. <laughs> also, break my kneecap specifically. But so, Iconoclasts <laughs> is a game that we've talked about a lot on this show. It's a, a favorite of both of ours, I, would, I think is very fair to say. It's an indie game that we both stand. And hope that you will, too, eventually. And Iconoclast pulls off one of the most seamless in-gameplay moments of pure tragedy that I think I've ever seen. So in Iconoclast, you play as Robin. Robin is a outlaw mechanic. It makes more sense in the context of the world, but I don't think we have time to fully go into that. And as Robin in this game, your main motivation is to fix things, whether that's you know, something that is wrong in your in terms of an actual mechanical device, or just like the world's kind of fucked up, and or, the people you that know, Robin relationships meets. between yeah. people, uh, so many different ways you can translate that. Basically, Robin's here to help everybody, which might sound like video game characters from a lot of other games. Robin is very much kind of like the a Link character. I think of Link in Majora's Mask, who goes around and has to help people with their problems be that my job is to get this bomb like it's to destroy this roadblock link can help with that or i can't find my fiance link can help with that robin is very much that same vein of character where 
if someone has a problem, she will do everything she can to help them with that problem. And thus, as the player, that is what you are doing as part of the adventure. Yeah, and as this adventure goes on, you're helping people on both sides of this sort of conflict that exists in this world. You help the these outlaw pirates that help that rescue you after an encounter with the authoritarian government you help the major scion of that government the son of the leader as he's trying to figure out what's going on what's going on with him you help your own pretty overly overly protective older brother figure and help him and his relationship with you and for most of the game, you're able to do this. There are characters that you can't help. These are the characters that you end up fighting against, like Agent Black and Agent White, Agent Gray. But for most of the game, again, because it's a game and you are Robin and the game wants you to succeed as you play through it, you're able to do this. Robin is able to fulfill this desire she has to help as many people as possible until you go to the moon. I would say even right before you go to the moon... Let's talk about Agent Black real quick. Oh, yeah. It's my rocket. <laughs> so Agent... I know that's a quote, but sorry. <laughs> Agent Black is one of the main... Anti- I, would, I would honestly argue that she is the main antagonistic force for most of the game. I would absolutely agree with like, that. She is, she is not the reason that the conflict exists, but she is the, the agent of the main government that you come into contact the most frequently and is the most persistent thorn in your side. And in the final moment, the final fight with Agent Black, you learn a little bit more about why she is the way she is and why her motivation is what it is and the reasons behind everything that she's been doing. And I don't really want to spoil too much of that because it's a really wonderful moment of storytelling and features an incredibly well-written monologue. But it's one of the first moments where there is a character expressing a problem that Robin is not able to fix. And it I wouldn't say it never gets resolved because obviously you kill Black, but you know, it's it's not something she can help her with like yeah. they're the not un- able to put aside their differences. The underlying problem that causes it doesn't go away because of the resu- the resolution of that conflict. Black dies unrepaired. And that is that is like Agent Black on her own is a tragic figure. Yeah. There is, she is, to put it into as generic terms as possible and to avoid spoilers as much as possible, she's essentially a super soldier. She was created to be this perfect like symbol of this government. But in doing that, she also has terrible migraines and she's never able to rest and she is always pushed to do these things that she doesn't actually want to be doing, which is tragic in its own way. She's also a super soldier, or considered a super soldier, because she's a failed version of one of the main characters, yep. Royal. And boy howdy, Royal's another character. Royal is, we'll like I Royal. mentioned, yeah. basically the, the for, for the easiest way of putting it, Royal is the intended successor in this government. He's, I don't think he, I don't know if he's actually the, the matriarch's son, but I don't think so. For all intents and purposes, he has been created to be this perfect vessel and perfect successor to help save the world and lead it. And Royal doesn't feel like he can. Royal is a, a character of contradictions where Royal feels incredibly 
like pompous he's written very pompously he's written in a way that suggests an air of superiority but in a lot of royal's interactions with robin royal is incredibly insecure and then you arrive at the moon you escort royal to the moon because there is something coming that royal believes he has been uniquely created uniquely gifted to solve there is a problem coming in this form of let's just call it an alien invasion because that's more or less what it is and robin helps royal get to the moon so that royal can communicate with these aliens to prevent the tragedy that is about to befall the world how's that go for him dylan pretty bad <laughs> pretty um, bad with the aliens um hit him with an attack that basically brings out every depressive thought that he's ever had over the course of the entire adventure and it all hits him at once and he is unable to snap out of it he kind of he goes into a fugue state and so on top of this the space station that robin and royal are in gets a hole and it is quickly depressuring and they have to leave before they both die and so what happens here is that you as the player as robin you have to carry royal with you you have to sling him over your shoulder because he doesn't have the strength to stand on his own two feet and carry him back towards the escape pods to get back to Earth. And for most of this, it's fine. You go through a couple of rooms where there's some jumping puzzles, but then you get to the end, and Royal's DNA triggers the security panel on the wall, and you're able. it opens the door and you can walk through. But then you come to the last room, and in that last room, the panel's off the wall. The panel is hanging on by a few yards of rope, as the wind is pulling it back towards that hole punched in the space station. And so you can't carry Royal through that door. Royal has to be near the panel for the door to be open. But if you then take Royal closer to the door, he's no longer close enough to the panel and the door closes. He is the key. He is the uh, trigger for the switch and as this is, door. And as this is happening, the timer is counting down. You only have a couple of minutes to get back out of the space station back off the moon before you'd lose and there is no solution you cannot take royal with you the game won't let you and honestly that is one of the most significant gut punches i've ever felt playing a game i still think about that moment i still think about the entire final act of iconoclast it is brilliant and it it hits you so hard because like dylan said this entire game is about you helping people the entire thing, everything you've done as Robin has been in some way or another helping somebody, fixing somebody's problem. Robin I is... Think, sorry, I just want to interject real quick because I think what really sells this idea in Iconoclast is that even though Robin has helped everyone and, spoiler alert, she saves the world at the end of the game, nothing is really resolved. All of the tensions that she has tried to smooth over still exist, but... You know, the different people that Robin's tried to bring together just go their separate ways. Yeah. And one last thing I want to talk about in the context of this, I'm going to argue that Robin's Hamartia, because Robin, in the end, it's not the most tragic ending. Robin doesn't die. Robin doesn't lose everything. Robin does manage to save the day. But I would argue that Robin's Hamartia is her selflessness. Yeah. She is selfless to a fault in the way that really only a video game character can be. Because you're controlling her and you're, you as the player feel emboldened to t- 
take on all of these things and try to help everyone in this world. You are playing in a virtual space where you are the solution to everyone's problems. And so Robin is an inherently too selfless person. And this is best exemplified when in the final boss fight, there is a segment where you are hit by the same thing that the aliens hit Royal with. And you see what Royal must have been seeing, which is you go into your own psyche and you have to confront... Here's the thing. In practice, it's a boss rush. But in narrative, you are confronting all of the people that you either had to kill or let die. You are confronting the ghosts in Robin's psyche of all the people in the course of that game that she wasn't able to help. Because that is the most... That is what is stuck with her, and that is the thing that she cannot move past because of her hamartia. And if you lose that fight, that is Robin succumbing to her fatal flaw. The tragic ending is built into a failure state in this game, which is brilliant. I love Iconoclast. Everyone should play Iconoclast. Iconoclast is so fucking good. What are you doing? Buy it. Buy it. Buy it. Let Cognac make more games. I mean, I think he's working on the new project now. Please God. Always. But yeah, that's that's about what I wanted to talk about this week. I I think that this... I think this went well. Also, let me teach you something. I know that we titled this episode when we started recording episode 68, but if you include our uh, our live show, this episode that we've just spent in this husky zone is episode 69. Oh, well, isn't that sexy? And with that, thank you everyone for listening to this sultry episode of Backstage to Gaming. I hope you learned something interesting about Greek theater and the applications of those ideas in the modern day. They're still around for a reason. If you like our show, remember to leave a review for it wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's the Apple Podcast Service, Spotify, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, or any other fine podcatcher. Also, if you want to know more about our show, you should check out our website, bsgpod.com. It's got a bios about me and Dylan, it's got info about the show, and it's got a contact form if you just gotta get a hold of us. Also, you can check us out on social media. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, where our handle is at bsg underscore cast, And we also have a YouTube. And if you want to engage with us in any meaningful way, also, yeah, tell us about, you know, this weird ASMR ASMR format for the show. Um, You can use the hashtag BSGpod. Also, I really want to give out a shout out to our good friend, Brendan French, for the key art he's provided our show. If you like his stuff, you should check him out at his Squarespace at brennan-french.squarespace.com. That is B-R-E-N-N-E-N hyphen French dot squarespace dot com. You can also find him on Instagram dot com slash Brennan French Arts and on Twitter at Brennan underscore French. You should also go show some love to our friend BioQuery. He's the musician behind our theme song, Dot Sound Radio, Volume 1, Instrumentality. He's a great guy. He's a great composer. He's got a lot of great music, and you can find that music by going to his SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash bioquery, B-I-O-Q-U-E-R-Y. Or you can go to Spotify and search for Bioquery. I want to give a big old thank you to the HP Video Game Podcast Network for having us on the network inexplicably when we do shit like this. I hope that you go and check out some of the other shows on the network. There's a lot of great shows looking at video games from a lot of different angles, and I'm sure that you'll find one just right for you. You can find them on Twitter at HPVGPodNetwork. I also want to thank all of our patrons, you sexy, sexy patrons, at patreon.com slash bsgpod. Thanks to you, we're able to do this show without losing any money, and that means the world to me. If you like our show and you want to be able to support it in a financial way, 
Patreon.com slash BSGpod is the way to do that. Now, get on out of here, you crazy cats. I'll talk to you later. Scatter. I can't believe we fucking did that. I can't either. (laughs)